This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 6, 2005. Tune into flight 1153, an ATR-72-202 twin-engine turboprop with 39 people on board is en route from Bari International Airport in Italy to Gerba Zaris Airport in Tunisia. 50 minutes after takeoff while cruising over the Mediterranean Sea at 23,000 feet, the plane's right engine fails. The crew begins running their checklist to restart the engine, but 100 seconds later, the left engine fails as well. The crew contacts the nearest airport in Palermo, but they're too far out over the sea. The plane ditches in the Mediterranean 18 miles off the coast of Palermo, killing 16 people. What happened to cause the plane to lose power? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, it's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus and people listening. Oh, yeah. Oh, hello, people listening. Uh, <laughs> welcome. We're, we're just here having a casual chat about uh, Tune Inter Flight 1153. As one does. You're welcome to listen along if you like. <laughs> but before you do that, we recommend you uh, go follow Black Box Down on social media like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. It's Black Box Down Pod. Are you, are you okay? Sounds like you're channeling Ringo Starr a little bit there, Chris. It was just... Like, <laughs> <laughs> just, just I was I was a little taken aback like that's not Chris. <laughs> From now on every uh, every episode will begin with a different impersonation, a bad impersonation. <laughs> yeah, like Chris said, give us a follow on social media, Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'd really appreciate it. We we post supplemental stuff on there. So, like for example, you can see what an ATR72 looks like in case you don't know. Uh, we've talked about this kind of plane in the past. It's one of those twin-engine, high-wing propeller planes. Mm-hmm. So an ATR, the the episode we did last week was about an ATR-42, which is a very similar okay. plane. Remember the one we did last episode was the, the plane that crashed to the side of a mountain? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They, they disappeared into a cloud. Very similar plane. The ATR-72 is a slightly bigger version of the ATR-42. In the United States, these are typically used in regional airlines, like short flights. Uh, you know, you don't fit a ton of people onto it. You fit, you know, a couple dozen people. It could probably fit, I don't know, all told if it was totally full. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a guess here, 50 people. So this, this plane was, if I had to guess, was not entirely full. And I don't know that for a fact. I'm going off, off of an educated guess. Okay. ATR-42 is slightly smaller. So again, just to clarify, this plane was an ATR-72. There is a similar one that we've talked about previous incidents as well, ATR-42. We may have even done an ATR-72 incident in the past. We probably have. But just trying to set it in your mind. All that to say, it's a roundabout way. If you go check out social media, we'll post a photo of an ATR-72 <laughs> so you know uh, exactly what it looks like. You, like I said, you've probably flown on one of these in like a smaller regional flight. Or if you've got, you know how it is. Sometimes you have to fly mm-hmm. from a hub airport to a smaller airport. These are the kinds of planes that would take you to do that. So to an interflight 1153, like I said, took off from Bari, Italy at 1232 Universal Time. 39 people on board. It was uh, four crew members. 35 passengers, one of which, one of the passengers was actually uh, an engineer for the airline. Okay. So I had uh, an extra teammate. Yeah, but, you know, he was not flying in an official capacity. He was, you know, in the cabin as a, as a passenger. And uh, the flight was under the command of 45-year-old Captain Shafiq Al-Garbi, who was a skilled and experienced pilot with a total of 7,182 flight hours. The co-pilot was 28-year-old Ali Kabair Al-Aswad uh, and he had locked 2,431 flight hours. Both the captain and co-pilot were well acquainted with this ATR-72. They had 5,582 hours and 2,130 hours in it, respectively. The captain uh, had just completed the last four runs of the previous day's flight routes, and the co-pilot completed the last two. 
this was a popular run between like this part of Italy and Tunisia. This was like a, a resort area in Tunisia. So a lot of people going on holiday would go back and forth uh, on this flight a lot. So this, okay. you know, captain and first officer had both done this leg a couple of times the previous day. So during the previous flight on the previous day, Captain Algarbi became aware of a problem with this plane, this specific plane. He noticed that there was a faulty fuel quantity indicator, FQI, in the right wing fuel tank. Faulty fuel quantity indicator. Yes. So kind of like your gas gauge? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like how much gas you have in your car? Yeah, it's instead of showing, you know, like a needle like in your car, it, it gives a weight. It shows like how much oh. fuel weight is in the wing. It was in kilograms. So, you know, since the captain reported that, that problem, that night the FQI was replaced and they put a new one in. And then when refueling, it's automatically stopped by the aircraft systems by means of a refueling valve. And this means that once the FQI establishes that the quantity of fuel in the aircraft is equal to the quantity selected, refueling automatically stops. So it's kind of like a smart gas tank. It would be like oh. if in your car you could tell your gas tank, hey, stop the gas pump when I get to half a tank. That's all I want to put yeah. in. And then the, the pump would stop. So yeah, you don't fill up until it clicks. It'll be like, or I guess, right. yeah, I guess, yeah. If you are like, whenever it, like you give an exact amount of money <laughs> instead of just filling it up all the way. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You, you can do that, right? Like you go in, you're like, hey, give me twenty bucks on pump four or whatever, and then it stops at that amount. Kind of a similar thing. And of course, the reason we've talked about this before is they don't want to take too much extra fuel because then it's more weight, which means they have to burn more fuel. Then they're just taking more fuel to burn more fuel. Yeah. So it's like exponential more fuel. Right. It's like, there is no point to it. You know, you take enough to get where you're going to hold if you need to, to divert, but you don't like planes just don't fill up every time because then they'd be way too heavy. It would, it, it would just end up wasting fuel. I wonder how much gas you would save in a car if you only filled it up like half a tank every time. It's probably, I mean, it would add up. It's probably negligible in the grand yeah. scheme of things. You know, here in this, you know, these planes, we're talking about like thousands of kilograms of fuel yeah. versus, yeah. you know, what you're looking at, you know, 20, 30 gallons in your gas tank. I don't know how much jet fuel weighs, but I can say like aviation gas, which is a different quality of uh, a fuel used in aviation, uh, weighs about six pounds per gallon. So it adds up really quickly. Yeah, that's, I don't know what normal car gas weighs, but it seems like it'd be like a lot less. I think motor vehicle gas is about, also about six pounds a gallon because AV oh. gas is very similar. They just have slightly different octanes. So I would bet car vehicle gas is about the same. So if you fill up, you know, let's say 30 gallons at roughly six pounds a gallon, then, you know, you're, that's a whole person. It's like 180 pounds. Okay. So it's like you're driving around, like you're adding a person to your car. Okay. And for reference, a gallon of water weighs 8.4 pounds a gallon. Okay. So gas is lighter than water. Oh, that's news to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the plane took off from Bari and they planned for a flight level 230, which is at 23,000 feet. And like I said, this is what, you know, when they're out over the Mediterranean at 23,000 feet, their right engine fails. So yeah, they go through the engine, they start going through the checklist, the engine restart procedure. And as oh. part of it, they descend to flight level 170, which is 17,000 feet. And they get to a lower elevation in order to try to have the air be a little bit thicker. That way it's easier to restart the engine. Okay. And, and you know, they don't know what's going on. The only error that they're getting inside the cockpit is they have a light illuminated that says feed LO space PR, like feed low PR, which means fuel feed low pressure. So they have fuel feed low pressure on the right engine. The right engine stopped and the flow meter and the temperature all indicated an uncontrolled shutdown of the right hand engine. 
Sounds like it's out of gas or not cor- not connected correctly. Yeah, it sounds like it, right? Mm-hmm. So they coordinated the descent to flight level 170 with, you know, with the Rome air traffic control. First officer started reading out loud the checklist. And, you know, we, we love the checklist here. So he's looking through the quick reference handbook for the procedure to follow for the type of failure that was detected. And during the reading of the relevant checklist, about 100 seconds after the right engine shut down, the captain requested the first officer stop reading because the other engine had also shut oh, down. Oh, so they weren't concerned that they were like out of gas at this point when the first engine shut off. No, they actually, as part of this, you know, when they're talking to Rome air traffic control, Rome asks them to verify what their fuel quantity is. And the captain looks at his fuel quantity indicator and says it's 800 kilograms in each wing. So they should have a total of 1600 kilograms of fuel. So, you know, they're looking at the gas gauge and the gas gauge says that's plenty of fuel. That's more than enough. Mm. The captain then ordered the first officer to inform air traffic control of the decision to divert the aircraft to Palermo and declare an emergency. They determined that Palermo is the nearest airport, you know, so they turn around back to Italy to try to get over to Palermo. And how far away are they at this point? At this point, uh, I don't have that in front of me off the top of my head. I want to say they were about 40, 45 miles or so off the coast. Okay. Doesn't seem too bad. Yeah, this particular ATR-72, I want to say, and again, this off the top of my head, I want to say it has a glide ratio of 16 to 1, which means for every 1,000 feet it descends, when they're gliding at optimal glide speed, they can go horizontally 16,000 feet. So if they're at 17,000 feet, let me do a little bit of quick math here, 17,000 feet times 16, they should be able to glide for 272,000 feet divided by 5280. They should be able to glide for 51 and a half miles. Okay. And, and you said they're... Uh, they were about 45 miles, if I remember right. From, from the Palermo. airport or the coast? From the airport. Okay. But we're going to get to that also <laughs> in a bit. <laughs> when it comes to, like, if a plane loses power and they're gliding, there are very specific things that need to be done to maximize that glide ratio and to be able to actually hit that 16 to 1 ratio. The plane needs to be configured a certain way and they need to be at a certain speed. If they're going too fast or too slow, then your glide ratio is totally different. It's 16 to 1 when they are at their optimal glide speed. Okay. And that's different for every plane. At 1.24, 19 seconds, the flight transmitted once more the Mayday Declaration, asking to be vectored for Palermo and confirming they had lost both engines. In view of the distance from Palermo in relation to their altitude, the crew asked if there was any other terrain closer than Palermo where they could land. So they're asking, like, is there anywhere we can land besides Palermo? Like, they're just looking for land at this point. Uh, And when they said this, they they declared they're at 15,000 feet. So 15,000 feet, that gives them 240,000 feet of horizontal distance, which is about 45.4 miles. Okay. So, see, the the distance is already starting to decrease little by little. You know, we we did a video, gosh, it must have been like a year and a half at this point, where we did, uh, we recreated a similar incident in flight simulator and it was the longest descent but it was incredibly tense like just slowly mm-hmm. trying to make it all the way i think when people imagine you know if you don't think about it like we do you know on this podcast if you just imagine a plane crash you imagine like nose diving at the ground you know and instantly falling from the sky and hitting the ground in reality if you're gliding you can glide a long time and you can go far you know, as our, one of our first episodes, what the Gimli glider, they, mm-hmm. they, they yeah. glided all the way to an abandoned airport. You know, they had plenty of time. If the pilots stay calm and follow procedures and you're at, if you have a high enough altitude, if you have enough altitude to trade, you can go a really far distance and it can take a long time. 
I guess it's like, you, you, I think you said it again on one of those early episodes. Planes want to fly. They want yeah. to stay in the air. As long as there is wind going over that wing, the plane turns into a glider. It's a really bad glider, but uh, <laughs> it, can, it can glide. Uh, just you're not going to be able to go very far. You know, a glider has, a glider is designed to have a much higher ratio, a much higher glide ratio. That's why they can go for really far distances. They can ride thermals to lift them up into the air and go for a really long time because that's what they're designed for. You know, passenger planes with engines, they're designed for the engines to be, you know, giving them thrust and pushing them. But even without that, you know, you still have altitude you could trade for speed. And that speed, you know, causes wind to go over the wing, which causes lift, which does allow them to glide a bit. So like I said, there was an airline engineer who had been sitting in the rearmost passenger row. And the captain requested his presence. And he entered the cockpit and took a position between the two pilots, attempting to assist in restarting the two engines. But of course, unsuccessfully. Uh-huh. After realizing they would not reach the runway, the captain requested the first officer read out the ditching procedure checklist. And ditching is like the specific term for crash landing into, the, into water. Yeah. So uh, they're going through the ditching checklist now. So they're doing this, but in theory, they should be able to make it to the airport? In theory, they should have been able to. But now when they start doing this, they, they're not going to make it. For, okay. uh, for reasons we'll get into, okay. they, they're still over the water. Like I said at the beginning, they ditched about 18 miles off the coast. They did not make it back to land. But before the first officer could finish, he was asked to abandon the checklist and help steer the aircraft to assist in the ditch. So, like, they run out of time. They're going to hit the water. And, you know, we've talked about ditching before. Some of the steps include things like making sure that the landing gear is up because you want the bottom of the plane to be as smooth as possible. That way there's nothing that mm -hmm. causes resistance on the water. Yeah. Because then that'll cause, like, a rapid deceleration. Luckily, you know, we, we talked about it in that Ethiopian Airlines flight where... And we showed a video on social media, actually, where, you know, the engines hit the water and then it causes the plane to like rapidly decelerate and it starts cartwheeling. Luckily, mm -hmm. this is a high wing plane and the propellers are high. They're not like low to the water. So they're not going to hit the water immediately. So what they have to do is they have to line up so that they are parallel with the waves again, so they don't hit a wave <laughs> and, you know, immediately stop themselves. They're going to line parallel and make sure that the under part of the plane is as smooth as possible. So no gear. And they want to go, be going as slow as possible parallel to the waves to, to touch down. So neither the crew nor the engineer could determine why the engines had failed. The distance from Palermo was repeatedly requested and after a last attempt, unsuccessful to restart the right-hand engine, with the aircraft at an altitude of 4,000 feet and a distance of 20 miles from Palermo Airport, the flight captain informed air traffic controller they were unable to reach the runway, requested emergency services be dispatched. Ugh. Then, like I mentioned at the top, they uh, ditched, they uh, impacted the Mediterranean, 18 miles off the coast. Man. Yeah, the plane split into three sections and 16 people passed away, but there were 23 survivors. Okay, well, I mean, that's, that's better than a lot of incidents. Yeah, you know, and they, you know, the before ditching, the crew or the flight attendants, you know, passed out life jackets to everyone so they could float. And I've seen some interviews with some of the survivors, you know, who, you know, who admit, you know, that they were panicked and, you know, they inflated their life jackets before getting out of the plane, you know, which is you should not absolutely not do that because, you know, when the plane starts to fill with water, it may become difficult to exit the plane if you have a life jacket that's inflated on because you can't get underwater. But, you know, some of the people who did that did manage to escape probably because the plane broke into three pieces. So it was easy to get out. And, I, and specifically, one of the guys I saw who was interviewed who had put his life jacket on said, that, you know, he had, he did, he did everything wrong, Chris. Oh, <laughs> no. he, he still survived. But he said, he took his seatbelt off because he didn't want to be trapped oh. in his seat 
when if the plane went underwater, which these seatbelts come off real easily. Uh-huh. And he also inflated his life jacket because uh, he didn't want to have to worry about it once he got out of the plane again. So he did the wrong thing. He said that the plane impacted the water and he lost consciousness. And when he came to, he was about 10 feet underwater. And then he swam up to the surface and uh, he didn't have his life jacket anymore and his shirt was gone. Wow. Very lucky. He Very lucky. He, um, he and some of the other passengers ended up like swimming over to the wings. The wings were floating. Like a lot of the planes sank, but the wings were buoyant and, you know, they went over, the, the survivors collected along the wings and, you know, waited there for a rescue to arrive. And the rescue got there pretty quick. I want to say the rescue got there within like 45, 46 minutes or so. Okay, that's good. Which is still a yeah. really long time yeah. if you're out and if you like survived a, a plane ditching in the ocean and you're just, you know, 18 miles off the coast, that's, uh, that's an eternity. But that's, that is still fairly quick. Yeah. You ever think about how many monthly subscriptions you have that uh, maybe you just don't even think about or you've forgotten about? Uh, I, I know I recently discovered I was paying for a cloud storage service that uh, I forgot about that I wasn't even using anymore. Uh, so that's why I love using Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. This app shows all your subscriptions in one place and then cancels for you whatever you don't still want. That's how I found this cloud storage service that I don't need anymore. I totally forgot about. Uh, Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. You may even find out you've been double charged for a subscription. Uh, To cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel. Rocket Money takes care of the rest. It's really like magic. Uh, Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. One last time, that's rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Guess what? It's fall. The intense heat of summer is over. It's getting cooler out there at night. So why don't you, you know, it's, it's a perfect time to spend a little more time outside. There's just something special about fall that brings us all closer together. With it. And with the smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove, creating those moments is easier than ever. Enjoy the warmth and comfort of a fire pit, plus portability, quick setup, and cleaning. Best of all, no smoke. It's absolutely great. That smokeless design, you you know, normally you hang out around a fire and the smoke like follows you for some reason. Uh, You don't have to worry about that. Don't have to worry about reeking of awful smoky fumes in your clothes, in your hair. Yuck. I hate that. That's why Solar Stove is so great. Plus, it's it's super convenient, super easy. You unbox it and you're ready to go almost immediately. Just put a little bit of wood in there, a little starter. Bam, you got a fire, baby. So upgrade your backyard with a Solar Stove fire pit. Create story-worthy moments without the fireside fumes. Stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. So little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. It's a perfect catalyst for getting outside, spending more time with family and friends. Build lasting memories around a solo stove fire pit. Like I said, they're so easy to light with just a few bits of starter. Your fire is blazing in minutes. They're so confident you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and 30-day free return policy. Prepare for your best outdoor memories yet and save big during the solo stove fall event. Plus use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. That's solostove.com. Promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for $10 off on top of the fall event deals. Hurry, the fall event ends November 10th. I'm sure we've all had a time when uh, we got stuck, we got a problem in front of us, and our brain just goes into overdrive trying to think about that problem over and over without actually coming up with any solutions for it. Well, you know, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with one of these challenges in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's really no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or how small. 
you know, you can see some benefits from trying therapy, like unloading stress, getting some uh, help with anxiety. Uh, I think, you know, we all are familiar with anxiety over the past couple of years. Uh, if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime if you want. Uh, when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash blackboxdown today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blackboxdown. This episode sponsored by BetterHelp. Again, go to betterhelp.com slash blackboxdown for 10% off your first month. All right, so let's get into this. We'll get into the investigation here. So the flight, you know, like I said, at 1230, received authorization for takeoff, which then occurred at approximately 1232. From the analysis of the data recorded by the flight data recorder, it appears that, in fact, the right engine had shut down by itself. Due to other traffic presence, Rome Air Traffic Control did not authorize the aircraft to descend directly to the requested flight level of 170, but gave initial authorization to descend to flight level 190. Mm-hmm. At 1.23, after approximately two minutes, the flight communicated they wanted to land at Palermo. By now, the left engine had also shut down, like I said, approximately 100 seconds after the first one. In giving authorization to descend to flight level 170, Rome asked if special assistance was needed. This communication overlapped with the previous one uh, by the flight and was not understood by the crew. You know how it is. Sometimes if multiple people talk uh-huh. at the same time, like on a walkie-talkie, you don't hear each other. Yeah. That's why you say over. <laughs> no, you actually don't say over in aviation. Some people do, but it's not required. Well, yeah, I guess in, uh, maybe in kids playing walkie-talkies, you say Yes, over. in kids playing and also probably in the military. I'm sure there are cases where you do, but I don't think you say over in aviation. So... According to the report, while cruising approximately 50 minutes after takeoff, the aircraft's right engine failed at 23,000 feet and they began descending. The left engine failed at 21,900 feet. The crew referred to having tried to restart both engines, but without success. Mm-hmm. When both engines cut out in mid-flight from Bari to Gerba, the captain requested an emergency landing in Palermo, Sicily. The flight crew did not detect... Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give you a spoiler here. Mm-hmm. So you were right. They actually did run out of fuel. I've been I've been dancing around it this whole time. And what happened here is the flight crew, did, remember I said that the crew told Rome that they had 800 kilograms of fuel in each wing for a total of 1,600 kilograms. Mm-hmm. But if you remember, I also said that the captain had detected a problem with the fuel quantity indicator the night before and it had been swapped out. Uh-huh. What happened was the crew did not detect the fuel exhaustion because when the fuel quantity indicator was swapped out, maintenance put in an ATR-42 gauge oh. instead of an ATR-72 gauge into this ATR-72. So the smaller plane. Right. The smaller plane with the smaller tanks. Oh, so it doesn't no. read the same way. Remember I said that the survivors clung to the wings because the wings floated? Uh, oh, because they were empty. Because they were empty. They had no fuel in them. If there was fuel in them, they should have sank. Oh, my God. And... The gauges fit identical. They look identical, Chris. I've looked at photos of them. I'll post these on social media. The only difference is the part number that's written on them. Like the part like, number for the ATR-72 says 2500. The part number for the ATR-42 says 2250. So some maintenance, maybe they were next to each other on a shelf, picked up the wrong one. They put it yeah. in. And it fits. And, and it, it turns fits. on and it works. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, oh my god they put the wrong fuel gauge in and the fuel gauge was still showing they had plenty of fuel that's why when they topped off with gas in Bari before taking off remember the fuel quantity indicator shuts off the refueling truck uh-huh. because the the, quanti- the fuel quantity indicator thinks they have enough fuel but they don't because it's not in the correct plane oh my god that's so I don't know terrifying 
it's, it's frustrating. So the plane glided for 16 minutes, you know, after running out of fuel, but was uh-huh. unable to reach the runway and, you know, they ditched into sea. And when they ditched, actually, they hit the sea at a speed of approximately 145 miles an hour. So just like, I think uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important detail to put into your mind how violent it is. You know, they're not just like, yeah. like slowly touching down on the water. They're, they're going f- probably faster than you've ever been in a car in your life. Like if you go 70 miles an hour down the freeway and you're like, wow, this is fast. Imagine going double that speed and hitting the water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, you said they didn't finish their checklist on ditching. You're supposed to slow down, I bet, right? Did they not slow down? Well, ideally, yeah. Ideally, you want to, you know, get as slow as you can and pretty much like essentially stall the airplane uh-huh. just a couple of feet above the water, you know, and let it touch down. It's hard to say, you know, what's the specific conditions? Maybe there was a wave and they were trying to get between the waves or for whatever reason, like that's when they decided to, to touch down. And, you know, the investigators say that the impact probably did occur with the rear part of the fuselage first, which would imply that they were pulling back, mm. you know, which is what you want to yeah. do. But this caused immediate detachment of the tail cone, which was subsequently recovered while it was still floating. The impact also caused the pressure bulkhead failure. After the first impact, the aircraft suffered a pitching moment, which caused the immersion of the forward part of the fuselage. And that just means that. So they were coming in, the back part of the plane hit the water first, detached, which then caused the nose to like come down and slam into the water. It became immersed in the water. You say detached, like as in like broken half? It broke off, yeah. Like the back part just entirely broke off. And then that, so that front part hit, instead of like kind of bloop into the, it just like broke and slammed and ugh. right and then the front part hit the water you know became submerged in the water and then it also broke off oh. so that's why it, they broke into three sections like the the mm. rear the forward part and then like the main body the forward part with like the fuselage and the cockpit and the rear part the fuselage part and the tail section sank after approximately 45 to 50 minutes the depth of the sea at this area was about 1500 meters which is what about 5,000 feet or so mm-hmm Therefore, the aircraft's flight recorders, which are in the tail, were not immediately accessible. 16 people of the 39 people on board lost their lives. And most of the passengers who suffered fatal injuries were seated in the front right part of the cabin near the cabin failure lines. So like right where it broke. Mm, Okay. The captain and first officer suffered serious injuries while the airline engineer who was present in the cockpit suffered fatal injuries. Both cabin crew members, which are the flight attendants, when ditching were seated in their seats. In particular, the senior flight attendant seated in the rear of the passenger cabin suffered fatal injuries, while the other attendant seated in the forward part of the cabin facing the cabin suffered serious injuries. So one flight attendant passed away and then the other one survived but had serious injuries. According to the official investigation, the flight crew in the 16 minutes that elapsed between shutdown of both engines and ditching had managed a situation considered as one of the most serious that may occur, characterized by a complete loss of power with subsequent electrical emergency and ditching in rough sea. In such flight conditions, the captain had the determination once he realized that it was impossible to land at Palermo to direct the aircraft towards two boats, deviating left from previous heading and requesting these boats be informed in order to facilitate the aircraft identification for the subsequent rescue operations. So what that's saying is that, you know, they're coming into ditch at 4,000 feet. The captain sees that there's two boats not too far away. Mm -hmm. So like he deviates in that direction to try to get closer to those boats, hoping that they'll see them and, you know, help help. immediately. Yeah, with, uh, with the rescue. Uh, and we've talked about ditching before. You know, on top of the Gimli glider, we talked also about the plane that had to land at the Azores. They ran out of fuel because of a fuel leak. The hijacking one. And then there was also the Ethiopian one. Yeah. So we've 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 encountered ditching that has gone, or we've encountered fuel exhaustion that has gone 
well and that's gone bad. This one, kind of a mixed bag. People died. Uh, they should have, in theory, been able to reach Palermo. And, you know, we're going to get into all of that here still. We still have plenty of episode ahead of us. So during one of the previous flights from Catania to Tunis, the captain recorded the inefficiency of the right-wing fuel tank indicator in the Section 4 recording faults in the aircraft's logbook. The flight captain had become aware the value shown by the FQI for the right-hand tank was not normal. Because some of the LEDs on the display weren't working. Uh-huh. You know how it is, like... Yeah, I'm sure you've seen it before, like an LED clock, like some of the little lights won't work. And you're like, is that a three or is that an eight? You know, what is that? Uh-huh. So like some of the some of the LEDs were just weren't displaying. So they didn't know exactly what number was trying to show. And that was the error that he had been reporting to me. OK, after arriving in Tunis, the flight engineer on board the plane during the first two routes carried out research for replacement FQI. So this could be replaced when the aircraft were returned from the last flight of the day. And like I said, the aircraft had its fuel quantity indicator replaced, but technicians inadvertently installed an FQI designed for an ATR-42, which is, like I said, at the very, that's why I was talking about this at the beginning of the episode. It's a similar but smaller plane with smaller fuel tanks. See, sometimes Mm -hmm. you're like, why is Gus talking about this? Like, we're going to get to it. This is important for later. I just thought we were like... Giving context, like, oh, we've talked about this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm, I'm dropping breadcrumbs. I'm, I'm trying to set you up that we're already thinking about it when we get to it. Ground crews and the flight engineer, relying on the incorrect readings from the newly installed FQI, loaded the aircraft with an inadequate amount of fuel for the flight. Once the FQI establishes the quantity of fuel in the aircraft is equal to the quantity selected, refueling will automatically stop. And neither the refueling operator nor the engineer realize that instead of the 700 kilograms that should have been pumped into the aircraft, only 465 kilograms were in fact pumped. So they were well short. And for reference, you know, they, they wanted to put 700 kilograms into the plane to, to have enough to get where they were going. When they ran out of fuel, they thought they still had 1,600 kilograms. <sighs> the technician responsible for replacing this part removed the faulty FQI and replaced it, you know, with the, the incorrect one following the detailed instructions of the job instruction card which did not require any checking of the correctness of the information provided by the device, but only by testing of the lights of the display after fitting. So basically the checklist for replacing it just tells him to like, turn it on, make sure that it light, you know, it turns on and mm-hmm. you know, the numbers light up that that's, that's the only check. They don't check to make sure, is it reporting the correct amount of fuel in the tank? Ugh. Which you, it's like in hindsight, you're like, of course you should plug it in and then make sure checks. Is it showing the correct number? Yeah. Even if it, even if they didn't put the wrong one in, you'd want to make sure that the one you replaced it with is working. Right. But they do, in their mind, checking to make sure the numbers turned on was checking to make sure it was working. They didn't verify that the fuel quantity was actually correct. Hmm. Obviously, this is a totally different scenario, Chris. But whenever, you know, I, I know I've, I'm, I'm a private pilot. Uh, I'm working on, you know, a more, more advanced rating. But anytime I go up for a flight, Part of the pre-flight is, you know, you, you check what the fuel quantity inside the plane says. And since these are smaller planes, then you get out and you actually look in the fuel tank oh. to verify, <laughs> is, is that correct what it's telling me in there? You don't want to just turn it on and be like, yeah, the gauge says we're fine. It's uh-huh. like, no, I climb up on the wing and look like, yes, there is the correct amount of fuel. It is showing the correct amount in there. And you just, is it like eyeball, you kind of learn how much, oh, that looks like about. Well, normally I like for it to be full on a small plane, you fill uh-huh. it up. It's like, okay, yes, this is obviously full. Uh, if it's not full, there's a dipstick you can put in that like, it's like a straw, you know, when you, when you cover the top of a straw and you pull it out, and there's like liquid in there still. Uh-huh. It's like that, except it's got like lines on it. It's calibrated to the tank. 
you put it in, you cover up the top like the straw, and you pull it out, and it shows like how much, how many gallons are in the tank. Okay. Yeah. And you know, like, oh, I've got twenty gallons in this wing or whatever. But yeah, normally I like for it to be full. That way, I don't have to get, <laughs> I don't have to get the measuring device. It's like, oh, yes, totally full. And then you also check for contamination, but that's a whole other thing. Okay, so the contributing factors leading to this incident were errors committed by the ground mechanics when searching for and correctly identifying the fuel indicator, errors committed by the flight crew, non-respect of various operational procedures, inadequate checks by the competent officer of the operator that flight crew were respecting operational procedures, inaccuracy of the information entered in the aircraft management and spares information system and the absence of an effective control of the system itself, inadequate training for aircraft management and spares information system use and absence of a responsible person appointed for managing the system itself, maintenance and organization standards of the operator unsatisfactory for an adequate aircraft management. And all of that is to say there were no like double checks to make sure the parts were correct. There was no oversight Mm -hmm. verifying that everything was done, you know, in a correct manner, inadequate training. There were some additional things I want to get to here in the findings. I'm going to read a couple of these findings and then I want to get into a little more detail about some of these uh, points. There's uh, four findings here. The accident resulted from fuel exhaustion due to installation of the fuel quantity indicators designed for the ATR-42 in the larger ATR-72. First, the investigation examined how the incorrect fuel quantity indicator came to be installed on the plane. The final report on the crash notes that during a flight the day prior to the incident, the captain, who was also flying during the incident, mm-hmm. became aware that the FQI in the aircraft dashboard was not working correctly and reported the problem. That evening, the FQI was replaced, but with an FQI that was intended for the ATR-42, a different model of the aircraft. The correct FQI was not found because its part number had been entered into the database in a different format than was searched for, and the inventory database mistakenly indicated that the ATR-42 part could be used on both models of the aircraft. The FQI for the two aircraft models have different markings on the faceplate, though the difference was evidently not noted. So there was a problem in their back-end database when searching for the part uh-huh. that showed that this part was acceptable. And the, like I said before, the only difference was the model numbers on the, fr- on the faceplate of the fuel quantity indicator. Okay, so yeah, the guys who did it, they didn't grab the wrong one. The system told them it didn't matter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is way worse. Yeah. In fact, the one of the lead investigator on this, you know, like I said, the the parts of the plane sank and it took him a while to recover them. And, you know, by this point, you know, by the time that the forward part of the plane, by the, by the time the cockpit was recovered, the lead investigator had said that, you know, they were suspecting that the wrong FQI was installed and that as soon as they recovered the cockpit, it was like the first thing he did, he said he made like a beeline for it, you know, and just like look to see what numbers were on the on the front of the FQI. And that as soon as he saw, you know, the 2250, he's like, this is exactly what happened. It's like uh, the smoking gun where you know, mm-hmm, like definitively. Yeah. yeah, like you like, I think this is what happened. Then you see the numbers like, yes, this is definitively mm. what happened, which must be super satisfying. Like these investigations are so wide ranging. You know, this, you have to look at every option and start narrowing it yeah. down. That's what's scary is, or I guess frustrating is it is such a definitive, almost like, I don't want to say simple thing, but. It is. Yeah. (laughs) So the investigation also examined the fueling of the plane. Uh The day of the incident, the aircraft was fueled for the flights from Tunis to Bari and Bari to Jerba based on the calculations using incorrect readings from the FQI. Because of differences in the shape of the fuel tanks, the incorrect FQI indicated a larger volume of fuel that the tanks actually held. When fueling the aircraft in Tunis, neither the refueling operator nor the flight engineer noticed the difference between the amount of fuel loaded and the change in the reading on the FQI. So if you think about it, it's like, (laughs) they were putting in, they know how much fuel they're putting in. 
but the FQI is telling them that there's more than what they put in and no one noticed that. Mm. It would be like you go into the, and I'm sure this happens to everyone. Like you go to the gas station, you start putting gas in your car. Then after like a few seconds, the pump cuts off. Uh-huh. And you're like, no, it's not full. Then you like do the thing where you pull it out and jiggle it a little bit and you start yeah, yeah. fueling again. Uh-huh. You don't just go be like, oh, okay, guess it's full. <laughs> <laughs> so when they normally do this, how do they base, I mean, do they like, is there a certain amount of time there? Like how much shorter, I guess, was it? Were they like filling it up, you know? I don't know. Uh, so so uh, let me actually read this next sentence. This will okay. actually give some information that will maybe make it a little more clear for you. So the investigation also found that while departing from Tunis on the Tunis to Bari route, taken before flight 1153, the captain noticed by reading his cockpit displays that the aircraft's fuel level seemed to have increased overnight, but he couldn't find the corresponding refueling slip. Because remember, he was the last pilot to fly the plane. Mm-hmm. So he comes in the next day. And he's like, there's more fuel in this plane than there was last night. So he goes to look for the slip. There should be a slip showing uh-huh. how much fuel was put in the plane. And he can't find a refueling slip because it wasn't refueled. The, r- the wrong indicators in there now showing more fuel. Oh. However, he accepted the explanation that the slip had been kept by a previous crew, but, but the plane had not been flown or refueled. He was the last person. He, oh, no. he was told, oh, he just accepted like, oh, someone else must have flown the plane. They probably kept the slip. Because the aircraft had been fueled for two flights, the flight from Tunis to Bari was uneventful. In Bari, the plane took additional fuel to a level where the incorrect indicator showed 2,700 kilograms. The correct indicator would have shown that they were just 540 kilograms in the tank when they departed, which was not enough. So even though there wasn't like a time thing, there should be slips in the plane showing them how much fuel was put in. Mm. And the captain kind of suspected something was up because he couldn't find the refueling slip and there was more fuel than he expected. Then he just goes like, oh, someone probably took the slip. You know, instead of following up, being like, where yeah. is this slip? You know, this is, this is kind of one of the checklists, the fallbacks. Uh-huh. It should be like, something's wrong here. It's like, uh, it's like confirmation yeah, bias, yeah, right? It's like, yeah. oh, it's like, there's got to be enough fuel in there. That's what the quantity says. That you're like, something must have happened to the slip. It's fine. Instead of like trying to track it down and really verify. But he did know that that part was, because he's the one who like knew that the part needed to be replaced, right? So Right, but he was told it was replaced. Yeah. So. I guess I'm yeah. thinking like, if I know something is wrong with the fuel gauge thing, and then you can't find the thing that's the, the documentation related to the fuel that's might be more likely to like set off alarms in your head. I mean, yeah. I, I, I also could see it not happening at all because you would just assume that, well, it says there's fuel. There should be right. fuel. You're like, Oh yeah, they did their job. They, yeah. they fixed it. You know, the, the numbers are lighting up. You know, yeah. It's, it's hard to say there is culpability there though. Right. Obviously something happened. Mm-hmm. And then the last finding here, finally, the investigation examined the flight after the engines had failed. During an engine flameout, crews must feather the propellers to reduce drag on the blades so the plane can glide a farther distance. While the propellers of the aircraft were found fully feathered after the crash, the crew did not feather them because they were attempting to restart the engines. Furthermore, as a result of their efforts to restart the engines, the crew did not glide the aircraft at the optimum speed to extend gliding distance. This is probably the most damning part of the findings. Remember, like I said, there was plenty of, if they maintained their optimal glide, Uh uh-huh, they should have been able to reach Palermo. Then we've talked about feathering the propellers before on a different incident, uh, the Transasia flight. What a feathering the propeller means, it's like normally you think of the propellers on a plane as like almost like a windmill blade, right? Uh-huh. When, when the propellers are feathered, they're turned almost like, not quite, but almost like 90 degrees so that the blade faces into the wind, almost mm. like parallel with the fuselage so that there's less drag. Yeah. 
that way it's not just like a solid surface of the propeller hitting the wind. It's turned, so it's like the thin part is hitting oh. the wind. And so whenever it's not turned, it's pushing into it and it's making it spin and stuff and like it's causing oh drag. Oh god. That's Yeah. So that's why they didn't get their 16 to 1 ratio. They also were not managing their uh glide speed correctly. So that's why they ended up ditching 18 miles off the coast, still in the water. They didn't reach land. In simulation, pilots who recreated this, they always reach the airport. Oh man. And that's I thought that was crazy because it's like, oh, they have plenty and then they didn't even get like, no, they were close. so far. Yeah. But of course, you know, in the simulation, that assumes that the pilots immediately know that you know, they're going to need to try to glide and that they need to do everything. You know, they're not trying to restart the engines. Even with an engine restart, they should have been able to get much closer. They were still really far. Mm. Yeah. It's just, it's just incorrect management, incorrect. It's, it's kind of CRM related, I guess. Not really, you know, dealing with the, the situation that was in front of them appropriately. I guess, is, is there more information about how that I don't know, chain of command or, or, or process broke down? Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit. <laughs> okay. I know I just read the findings. We still have a bit more to go through here. We're, we're going to get into that. And the reason we're going to get into that in a bit is there's a criminal investigation. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so after the official investigation of the crash, charges were filed against the captain and six others when it was discovered that emergency procedures were abandoned because the captain started praying when action was needed. Oh, no. So it was kind of a controversial investigation. It seemed to omit details from cockpit recordings that would, you know, shed light on other factors, including poor communication from Palermo's air traffic controller. The investigation found that when the flight crew attempted to restart the engines to no avail, they prevented the feathering of the propellers, which could have allowed the aircraft to glide at the optimum speed to extend the distance. The root cause for the crash was found to be the incorrectly installed fuel quantity indicator. And when fueling the aircraft in Tunis, Neither the refueling operator nor the flight engineer noticed the difference between the amount. And the mechanics involved in installing the faulty fuel quantity indicator did not check compatibility and was considered by the investigation to be one of the main active failures in the incident. In March of 2009, an Italian court sentenced the pilot, Shafiq Garbi, to 10 years in prison for manslaughter. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Prosecutors said that after the plane's engine stopped functioning, Garbi succumbed to panic started praying, and failed to follow emergency procedures, and that he possibly could have reached runway 25 of the Falcone Borsellino Airport, or even the standard runway 20. Six others, including the first officer as well as the chief operating officer of Tunitir Airlines, were initially sentenced to between 8 and 10 years. Oh my, that's a lot. For I mean, it's a lot. We, I, we've covered a ton of incidents. Most of the time, it's very rare that there's like actual jail time, I feel like, right? Right. And like I said, this is, they should have been able to reach the airport. You know, if they had really stayed on top of the emergency and managed it, they had more than enough glide distance. You know, I was just doing quick math here to figure it out. And there was, there was enough time. Even at 15,000 feet, they probably would, should have made it. You know, and by that point, mm -hmm. they knew they had no engines. And at that point, you start to really consider <laughs> optimizing your glide angle. So yeah, I mean, obviously the prosecution found significant fault here to, to sentence these people to prison. Yeah, I, I guess it's it, it just... It, I mean, it doesn't sound, I mean, they weren't malicious with it. They were just negligent. So yes. I guess. Mm. So there is a little more. Uh, I, I don't want to like dogpile on here. Uh -huh. there, there, is a, there is a little more to it here. Uh, the criminal investigation and subsequent sentencing caused considerable controversy in Tunisia and, you know, also in the civil aviation world. Mm -hmm. The official investigation was accused of being one-sided and ignoring mistakes made by Italian air traffic controllers. Remember, this is an Italian court. 
it's a Tunisian airline. Mm. It's Italian citizens on the plane. Oh. It, it becomes complicated. You know, one country is, it, you would think it's possible one country would be incentivized to find fault in the other country. Yeah. Unedited cockpit recordings leaked to the public demonstrated that Palermo air traffic controller as having a poor grasp of English, failing to assign the distressed aircraft its own radio frequency on which to communicate and giving the pilots incomplete and or useless information about their position. Oh, no. And these cockpit recordings were omitted from the official investigation report. Oh. See, and remember, we've talked about this before. This is one, another one of those, like, gaps, right? English is the official language of aviation. You've got Italian air traffic controllers. You have Tunisian pilots. You know, English is all of their second language. And if there's problems communicating, it can exacerbate these emergencies. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like, I don't want to entirely dogpile yeah, well, <laughs> on the pilots. It's a, it's a, you know, like anything, it's complicated. It's not just like, it's not always super cut and dry. There's a lot of nuance to it. Yeah, I guess I'm imagining too. It's like something's going wrong. They start panicking. But now instead of having someone who's like not in as stressful of a situation, like a life or death situation, who could be like, hey, you need to do, you know, like c- communicating what to do or like kind of helping them level out, right? Then you have someone right. who they're not able to communicate. Just, it, God, it just make it wor- so much worse. It just even the even the little things like not giving them their own radio frequency to communicate on. You know, they have plenty of frequency. Like they stayed on the same frequency as everyone else. They're having to like listen the whole time as other people are checking in or doing things. Right? It's like it's distracting because you're like, are they talking to me? No, they're not. Are they talking to me? No, they're not. You they're, know, they're just hearing normal planes fly. Like, hey, I'm right? Coming. Oh my god. So oh. it's like they're on the same frequency. Like they should have in an emergency. They should be assigned their own discrete frequency. That way. It's very, you know, they know when the radio comes on, this is for me. It's not distracting. Yeah, that seems pretty significant. Yeah, it's, uh, and then, of course, the poor grasp of English. Then it becomes difficult to communicate. It's, it's frustrating. But still, that doesn't, you know, change the fact that if they had feathered the propellers and mm-hmm. if they had optimized their glide speed, they should, at the very least, made it back to land. In April of 2012, the court of Palermo, Italy, reduced the sentences of seven of the Tunisian airline personnel charged. Following their second appeal to the court, Captain Shafiq Garbi received six years and eight months, with the others receiving reduced sentences between five and a half years to six years. Wow. Yeah, so it was reduced, but it's still significant. That's still real. That's still a lot of jail time. Especially because you go through something incredibly traumatic and and you you almost die and then you get out and then you go to jail. Yeah. Tunitaire compensated each family of a victim or survivor with 20,000 euros. Uh, on September 7th, 2005, the Italian government banned Tunitaire from flying into Italian airspace. Tunitaire eventually rebranded itself as Seven Air, and now they actually have scheduled flights back into Italy again now as Seven Air. But yeah, that's it. I mean, that's uh, Tunitaire Flight 1153. It, it has similarities to other incidents we've covered in the past. That's why I keep referring to them. But it's its own, like, whole thing. Uh, <laughs> but it's just unbelievable to me that the FQI for... Two planes with very different fuel quantity capacities could fit into each other. Yeah. Uh, I think that was one of the recommendations was that they make it so that these parts yeah. are not, they don't fit and they don't work anymore in the same spot. Yeah, I feel like they do that with, like, that's pretty basic. They do it with, like, Ikea, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. they make everything slightly different so that you don't end up, yeah, building it wrong. Mm-hmm. So, so the uh, jail sentencing, as you said, was controversial. What's the general opinion or or uh, sentiment around that now? Is it, do do people still feel like it's too harsh uh, in general, or that uh, it wasn't divided? Appro- yeah, 
you know, it's, uh, I think, you know, most, it depends who you ask is what it's going to mm-hmm. boil down to. You know, people who are pilots and who fly are going to say that it was too harsh. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know they, they did the best they could in yeah. order to ditch. You know, people who are advocating for passengers and the families, of course, are going to say, you know, it's not enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very divided, it's a very controversial decision. You know, I, if you're asking me my opinion, man, I, I think that people should definitely have been punished for this. Uh, I think that, I, I don't know what the appropriate punishment is. But I think that, you know, there was enough negligence to go around where, yeah, people needed to be, you know, punished and there needed to be, you know, uh, monetary penalties as well. Mm-hmm. Because this was, in t- this was so un- inexcusable. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. Tuna Terror Flight 1153. Uh, like I said, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. I'll post a photo of a, uh, an ATR-72. I'll see if I can find a photo comparing it next to an ATR-42. I don't know. I'm sure one exists somewhere. I'll see if I can find one. I'll see if I can also find a photo of the FQI showing you how they're identical and it's only like the number on the face. Yeah, I want to see. Yeah. I have a, wait, I have, sorry, one couple follow-up. Oh, oh, oh uh, no, sorry. I'm, I'm trying to wrap up here. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> well, no, I was just wondering, uh, are they still in Are they still in prison then? I, what year was this? So it was in 2012 uh, okay, that the sentences so, were reduced, and it was you know yeah. reduced to six years. So they would even if they served the entire sentence, yeah. they would be out by now. Okay. Yeah, the incident itself happened in 2005, and sometimes it's hard to get follow up. You know how the mm-hmm. news goes. Oh like, yeah. There's lots of news about it when it happens, and then there's no you know follow up. Years later, people forget, and so I yeah. don't know what happened after the fact. All I know is the sentencing would happen in 2012, and then I'm sure. Somewhere in an Italian or Tunisian newspaper, there's further information mm-hmm. about it. I just, I, yeah. don't, I personally don't, I couldn't find any, anything. I guess, man, it, I'm just thinking of the perspective of the, the crew and how they, not only are they in jail, they also have the added guilt of feeling like it's their fault. And that's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's really terrible. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, because we've talked it, about, it's bad. We've talked about pilots who did a great job on, on incidents. And they have this guilt of like, oh, I could have done differently. Maybe if I'd done this, then more people would have lived. And it's like, right. Then under this circumstance, we're like, oh man. Yeah, it's got to it, it's got to be you know racking to deal with that guilt. All right, well, uh, we back again next week with another episode. Yeah, and tell tell people to subscribe and check out the show. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Bye.